Called it loon shit. It's just that freaking greasy top layer on those northern roads. But I froze my bag off. Like I had every piece of clothes on inside my hey welcome back to come out every podcast uh sitting here again with kurt and uh Holy fuck. We trying to weather this heat storm that's hit British Columbia. It is insane right now. Like I am sweating my bag off. It's it's fucking insane. I've never experienced anything like this. Yeah, it's uh not comfortable. Uh everyone I think in BC right now that I think everyone. I don't think there's people out there like, "Oh, I love it." It's like it's wonderful. Fuck off. At some point you're like, "This is miserable shit to deal with." Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everyone's happy when the sun's out till it gets above plus thirty-five, and then everyone turns grumpy. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. All the drug dealers are getting rid of their drugs and selling AC machines right now out of the trunk <laughs> of their car. Yeah, fuck. There's a market. Hey, eh? the HVAC technicians yeah. are millionaires this summer. Yeah, hot commodity. Oh fuck yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, yeah, it's quite the heat wave. I mean, it's you know what? When I get heat like this, I start to think about hunting too because we've had those. September elk hunts and, and things down here, or actually, yeah, late September when you f- kind of first came down and, and we hit that Indian summer, they call it, and uh, it was just super hot. And I wonder, like, that with, with sheep, it'd be nice to get someone on with any advice there. Like, we should look at, or if anyone has, listens to this and, and thinks about that. Like, you go, you know, August, let's say the weather up in the mountains is, is close to the 30s. Is there a strategy to this hot weather for hunting? I don't. Yeah, I the only thing I could think of is that animals need water, and yeah. when it's hot, the water's not up top. That's for that's for sure. So probably down in the drainages, especially stones like being in the trees lots. So, but yeah, maybe we'll talk to Johnny and get his input here coming up in the next few weeks. But. Yeah, I'm sure that they've experienced some kind of heat like higher than normal. I mean, I would also think like twilight hours come way more into play again. You know, like it's gonna be your your best hours or your first hour and last hour, just like other hunts. Yeah. And they'll be in the shade throughout the days. I imagine Yeah, it's like all animals. I would just worry, like not even trying to locate, like I'm sure you could still pick up sheep and find them. Fuck man. I'd be worried about the water. Like if, yeah, if it droughts out, like for us, like for hunters trying to find it, like remember we had trouble finding our water that first day just cause it was a new area to us. And it wasn't even that droughty of a year. Uh, yeah. It fucking rained every day last year. It seemed yeah. like, so but. that would worry me a bit but yeah um other news too in bc the the lehs came out this last week and uh i feel like we had something to do with that yeah fucking uh what's his nuts there from the the premier he, he must have been listening to the pod eh? he's a big hunting guy that fucking dildo <laughs> but uh yeah so lehs came out <laughs> i got skunked again 
So I don't know. You you came out not bad though, eh? Yeah, it's, well, it's good for the. Well, it's good for me too. I mean, I actually I've never put in for a moose shared down in the Kootenay, so I kind of just knowing that I wasn't going to get up north besides the sheep hunt. I thought, well, I'd throw my hat in a, a shared moose hunt for this area and put it in with the uh, partners down here, and we drew shared moose for Kootenay region, and one of my one hunting partner drew a mountain goat tag, so that's going to be wicked too. So. That'll be fun to just get on those two. Nice, nice, man. Yeah, it's always exciting, man. Like when you hear, oh, LEHs are out. So I'm like, I'm working in shitty service. So I go to the top of a hill and I'm, I'm on my phone and it's not loading. And you're just like, fuck, this is the year, man. I'm going to get a bighorn tag. I know I'm feeling it. Like that or a fucking caribou tag, something good, right? Fucking nil. And I just yeah. about threw my phone out the fucking window. Well, it's like playing the lottery. You think everyone, everyone thinks they're going to win, right? It's, oh, and, and I, 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 I was guaranteed going to win that Lotto Max last week. Like, I had that feeling where I'm like, this is it, man. This is life-changing. Yeah. Fucking 70 mil, here we go. I, I want 20 bucks, though, so that's all right. I'm usually at work, and you send me a text or something. LEHs are out. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll check them when I get home. I, like, play that as, like, oh, I'll just wait a little bit, right? Like, don't check them on my phone. I want to sit down, you know, crack a beer. Something's going to be coming. I just, like, prep for it. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get something, right? <laughs> The, the worst year that i ever had um the lehs came out and i didn't even check it garrick my brother-in-law just texted me he's like lehs are out you didn't get anything i'm like fuck, <laughs> fuck, thanks man <laughs> you fucking cocksucker like <laughs> yeah, it just takes all the thrill away yeah open up my christmas present for me how about yeah. <laughs> jesus christ yeah, that's funny yeah well we got a we got a good show lined up for uh for you guys we we got a special guest on um his name's justin schaefer and he's from kuyu and he's got a military background and an extensive hunting background too is the big thing kurt you want to kind of take it away lead into what he does for kuyu there yeah he's the uh senior director of guide and outfitters so he deals directly one-on-one with uh they don't necessarily have a pro staff team, but they have uh, some elite guides and outfitters that they they use to test and to test their prototypes before they go to production and whatnot. And um, yeah, it's really good. He kind of the guy's got tons of experience hunting. Um, he's a award winning marksman, like with long range shooting. He was part of the army snipers, so he's got some some good intel in. Uh, in shooting talks about guns he's a big bow hunter as well uh big thing is like we dev and i obviously love kuyu uh i've been on the train since pretty much since they came out um yeah it's kind of everything that we run too right so it's i was really interested in him talking about his backpack hunts and and then he breaks down his backpack you know we asked what how much weight he's going in and it kind of blew our minds like what was he at well, yeah, people have to listen, but I think he was like 50-some pounds. 55 pounds, he said always. And that's, you know, well, For, you'll listen to it in here, but I think it was just 7 to 10 days. So it's like with Yeah, gun, like last year, my water. my food was 30 fucking pounds last year. I'm like, how do I shed? Where do I, like, obviously, I don't need to take a bunch of food. But, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Like, this guy is hard as fuck. It doesn't get any harder than this guy. He's got his last story at the end of the show. Make sure you stay and listen to that because he he tells the craziest story that I think I've ever heard. Like, I don't know. 
he's yeah, a, he's another level that's for sure yeah a pretty wild hunting story at the end there and it's like talking weight and packs like i i started prepping the sheep bag this week just because uh start carrying around a bit more with my actual bag like i carry another bag a little bit for training and I like to pack and see what, well, it's good I actually checked because I ripped one of my fucking roll top dry bags, stuffing shit in it, one of the normal ones I take, and when I was stuffing it, just tore. So it's good, I'm going to need to get a new one of those, not a big deal, but it's good to know that before I do it on the mountain. But fuck, I load everything in, and I'm weighing things as I go, and I, oh, bag can't be that heavy, and I, and I weigh it with the rifle, and I don't even have food in the fucking thing, and I'm 53 pounds. I got three liters of water in it, but I'm like... <laughs> Well, if I put 20 pounds of food in there, I mean, quick math for a welder, but that's close to 73 pounds of fucking backpack. Yeah, if you take the zeros off, you can use your fingers for that, Dev. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I, I can't figure out how to get underneath, like, you know, 65, man, I'd be happy with if that was my full load. I'd be like, yeah. And that's not even with any shared gear, right? You got to think, like, you got, yeah. we're sharing a tent uh the spotters set up stuff like that or like any of that gear that uh, that we pass off to each other so i'm like fuck it we're going in heavy boys trying to come out heavy but we're going in heavy too yeah yeah i i I, we're both the kind of the same where it's like we'll sacrifice a little bit extra weight in the backpack just to kind of be sound i guess i don't know like sometimes it's nice to have a couple little extra supplies in there i don't know i've I've never been in a situation where there is some shit that I've never pulled out of my backpack before, but I think it, you get into a situation where that one time and it saves your fucking trip, then it's it's worth throwing in. But everybody's different, right? Some people like going ultra light, really roughing it when it comes down to it, and yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. I don't know either. <laughs> it is what it's it is, a, I guess. Yeah, I mean, each to each to their own. I mean, we know what we're up against. Like we're we're prepared for it, so fuck it send it exactly yeah send it when you go in with 90 fucking pounds coming out with 140 (laughs) isn't that bad i guess (laughs) yeah it's pre-training yeah the fuck you got rocks in your backpack (laughs) well it's 12 pack of beer i put in yours before we go yeah i'll slip a 60 in yours yeah well without further ado we're gonna we're going to send it over to our guest, and I hope you guys enjoy the show with Justin Schaefer from Kuyu. Well, Justin, uh, thanks for spending some time with us uh, this evening. Uh, Kurt and I have been excited to get you on, and uh, yeah, if you want to just give yourself a quick little intro to, to the crowd out there, kind of who you are and, and where you're from. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, good to be here, guys. Sorry, it took a couple times to get me on here, just uh, trying to juggle schedules. But um, my name is Justin Schaefer. I uh, live in Anchorage, Alaska, and I am the Guide and Outfitter Senior Director for Kuyu. Excellent. Wow. Yeah. That, that kind of sounds like a dream job for anybody in the hunting industry. <laughs> oh, it is. Absolutely. So yeah, it's about 90% uh, fun and about 10% work. So it's, it's still a job, but no, if you're going to categorize a dream job for somebody in the hunting industry. The the position that I have at Kuyu and what I do and get to do on a daily basis, it's absolutely a dream job for, for me. So that's, that's awesome. A uh, little backstory here. I kind of uh, met Justin through a mutual friend, Johnny Nykirk. And he's, you know, he mentioned your name and he's like, <clears throat> he'd be a great guy to have on. And 
So we're just going to kind of dive into your background a little bit because um, you're an uh, ex-military uh, Army Ranger sniper. Is that correct? Yeah, I guess, yeah, you can put it that way. I spent uh, 25 years in the Army, retired uh, out of the Army and, and spent a large majority of that time uh, as a scout sniper, Ranger qualified, uh, airborne, jump master, pathfinder, kind of jack of all trades, master and none. <laughs> That's uh, like I, I told you earlier, Justin, how I've always been intrigued kind of with the U.S. military ranks and whatnot, because Devin and I have a, a first cousin that's a Navy SEAL. And, you know, when he was kind of getting into it, how old do you think we were, Devin? Like 14, and 14 15. Yeah, right around there. Training for hockey. And yeah, he, he had a buddy that was doing the training and he was just doing it for fun to train for hockey in the summer times. And when he retired from hockey, he jumped in it and he would come up and whoop our asses in the summertime and it would, you know, and then you'd get a, the odd story out of him and whatnot. But no, I'm sure you've experienced some pretty wild shit in your 25 years. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've been all over the world and, and been in a bunch of different units and been a bunch of different places and deployed. And yeah, it was, it was a great life, a, a crazy life, you know, and, and did a lot of different things that, you know, the average guy doesn't get to do or see or, you know, they they only see in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> so 25 years ago, were you trying to hunt at all when you were doing the military stuff? And if so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were from the lower 48 before Alaska too. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was born and raised in uh, Denver, Colorado, left for the army when I was 18. So grew up hunting and fishing. Um, and every chance I got, no matter where I was stationed, um, you know, if the opportunity was there to, to hunt or fish, I always took advantage of that, whether, you know, I was stationed in North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, uh, Colorado, it didn't matter where I was. If, if I was stateside and there was a season to do something, I was doing it. Nice. That's awesome. So when you, uh, obviously the military is what brought you up to Alaska. Um, I mean, Colorado is probably... Montana, Colorado, Alaska are probably the big three that I like personally that I think would be amazing to hunt. Um, Alaska just seems like, you know, it's it's a lot like Canada, I guess, right? I've, I've never been up that way, but from what I yeah, know, sure. it's I mean, amazing. It is. It, it's the mecca, you know, it's the, the pinnacle of hunting, especially for, you know, Americans and, and lower 48ers that, you know, as you guys know, you got to have a guide for everything in Canada. So growing up in the lower 48 hunt in the west and and you know alaska always being that dream destination to have the opportunity to to move up here and be stationed here and, and live here and now retired and be here year round it's it's the ultimate dream for any type of outdoorsman or sportsman for sure no doubt so when you you went up to alaska for work can you kind of tie us into how kuyu kind of tied into that and and were you doing kind of both at some point or, or how did that all kind of tie together yeah so uh before last i was uh stationed out of georgia i was a sniper school instructor and the opportunity to come to alaska opened up and i jumped on it and uh, moved up here and then once i got here i just buried myself in like a tick and and bounced from units and and took different jobs to be able to stay here um until ultimately i retired two and a half years ago and took the job for kuyu but if you back up there a little bit, I've been in the industry in one way or another for about 20 years, you know, um, guiding, writing, 
uh, you know, doing different stuff like that, um, shooting competitively, uh, working with sponsors. Um, so in one way or another, I've been in the hunting, shooting, sports industry for almost two decades. Wow. That's... Uh... So and then the, the way it, it worked out with Kuyu is um, I had planned on getting out at about the 26-year mark, uh, just the way I had things lined up. Um, I have a, a small guide business. I've sold most of that off now, but um, with a partner of mine that lived up here, and then I, I have a small tax service shop, and that was kind of my retirement plan uh, when I got out was I was going to build up my tax service shop, build up my outfitting business, and that's what my retirement job was going to be. And uh, I was down in Utah mountain lion hunting, and I get a text from Brennan Burns, and it says, hey, when are you retiring? And uh, I text back, and, you know, I'm like, at that time, it was like, you know, 28, 30 months later, uh, you know, before I had planned on that retirement date. So, and I was driving to the airport flying home, so I didn't think much of the text. You know, I wasn't sure why he had text that. And then I get home, and you know, I, I'm going through my phone, and I think about it, and I text him back. I'm like, hey, why did you need to know when I retired? And uh, he was like, because I'm looking for my replacement, you know, and, and just being dumb and, and not thinking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you know, who are you looking for? And he's like, you dipshit. And I'm like, me? What do you mean? He was like, I need to hire my replacement. I've only got one guy on the list, and it's you. He's like, but... You know, if, if you've still got two years left, you know, that doesn't work. I'm like, dude, I can be retired in 90 days. You give me the word. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I flew down to Dixon, California. I met with uh, the co-CEO, uh, Melissa at the time, interviewed with her and uh, flew home and dropped my retirement paperwork. And 90 days later, I was full-time employed, retired, working for Kuyu. Fuck, what a, what a dream retirement job. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I was not going to let that go. So, so you said... You know, Brendan wanted, you know, like who like you is uh, across the board, you know, they wanted authenticity. And with, with Brendan stepping up to take the co-CEO role and me filling his role as the Guide and Outfitter director, and uh, underneath the Guide and Outfitter director role, I also run the Military and Law Enforcement First Responders Program. So that's wrapped up underneath it as well. And, you know, they wanted authenticity. They wanted somebody... You know, that had been in the industry, somebody that was a guide and outfitter, somebody that's hunted uh, the world. And then having the military background, you know, I checked all of those blocks for them. So for for me, the job was a no-brainer. You know, it was a hard yes as soon as he's offered it. You know, and, and at the same time for them, you know, I was their first choice recruitment, which, you know, felt pretty good to, to step into some big shoes to fill. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely. Um, so kind of back not backstepping but you said senior director and then head of all the guides so can you kind of explain what a i don't know kind of what your the details of your responsibilities what you kind of face is hunting season really hectic for all industry like that for you is it even worse because you're helping all these guys out all the time yeah so um what i was initially hired for and what my roles developed into are are kind of two different things or you know it's just multifaceted now so um, besides running the guide and outfitter program and then overseeing the military and law enforcement, I do, you know, some stuff with product development, product testing, um, social media, marketing, kind of rolled into that jack of all trades, master and none again. But my primary role and function is inside the guide and outfitter program, Kuyu doesn't have a typical pro staff like a lot of companies and, and a lot of the industry has. We rely on our guide and outfitters to kind of be that voice uh, and that face of the brand for us. You know, those guys 
that's what they do every day. That's their job. That's what they do for a living. You know, they're not somebody that's that's paid to go on and, and pitch a brand. You know, so we look at that again um, on the authenticity level. You know, you're not going to get anything more authentic than a guide and outfitter in BC, Canada on a stone sheep hunt. And when his client shows up, he sees him wearing Kuyu. So I manage that role inside the guide and outfitter program. Um, you know, we do a lot of different things, working with our guides and outfitters, um, you know, helping with clients, uh, building packing lists, you know, doing a lot of different things inside of that role uh, with the guides and outfitters specifically. Kind of manage that process like you would a pro staff team, but not having a pro staff team. And, and we're global. It's not just the U.S. and Canada. We, we manage, uh, you know, uh, X amount of guides and outfitters globally. That sounds like a crazy job, man. Like that's it, it keeps me busy for sure. So <laughs> I bet, yeah, because yeah, oh, that's a Johnny. Oh, go ahead. No, it's kind of you're probably going to say the same thing. I'm thinking logistically, you're not. Yeah, when you're saying all across, I mean, just from the guys we know, the guides from BC we know. I mean, they're either crossing the border to Mexico or they're going across the border to NWT. So your logistical. Like, I'm thinking on the logistics level of, like, delivery. Like, how do I get stuff to these guys that need it? Is that something that you'd probably face hard? Oh, yeah. I mean, anything that has to do with getting product uh, to them, um, help, having them test things for us, you know, I'm kind of that go-between between them and Kuyu to help facilitate that process. So, like, just for instance, um, Johnny, as you guys know, went down to Mexico to guide desert sheep like he always does. Well, he needed new boots. And yeah. with the shipping into Canada, you know, there wasn't going to be enough time to get him those boots into Canada. So turned around and shipped them to a client in California where he was overnighting and he was able to pick those boots up so that, you know, he had what he needed to be able to have that six to eight week guidance season that he was spending down there in Mexico. So that, you know, just a, a small facet of kind of what we do inside the guide and outfitter program, you know, helping them to help us. Yeah. Johnny holds you high praise because... He was saying that you're a lifesaver with those boots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, Johnny, there's, as you guys already know, there's nobody better than that dude on the planet. He's an absolute beast, so, you know, I, I think the world of Johnny. Yeah, and to, yeah when me. you say beast, but you see him, and you'd be surprised at the same time, but he is a fucking workhorse. Yeah, yeah. no, it's like Roadhouse when, when they see Patrick Swayze, <laughs> like, I thought she'd be bigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Johnny's a gangster, man. I love that guy. He's the he's got to be the strongest skinny guy I've ever met in my life. Like, yeah, it, I mean, he, he's a buck forty wet with his pack on, you know, on a good yeah. day. Like me and him like, wrestled a moose in the back of the truck hole, just the two of us, and you know, I had the the ass end obviously, but I was like, "There's no way we're gonna get this in there." And sure as shit, like he's strong, man. And everyone yeah, that's been no, the mountains with him, no one can keep up with that guy. He just no, he skips will across walk you the, into the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and he, he's got no remorse for anyone either. He's just like, What what's taking you so long? Like, man, yep. I I got like 150 pounds on you. Like, just cut me some yep. slack. He's like, Oh, don't be a pussy. Just come on, <laughs> yeah. hurry up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's all go. All go. Definitely. Um that's all. Awesome. I had a question too, that's kind of the same along the same lines. Can you explain the Kuyu military program a little bit? I was kind of reading about it and, and researching a bit, but what does that entail? Yeah, so the, the basis of the program itself within uh, the military and first responders program, it's just a basic uh, discount program that we run. And then we do specials throughout the year 
Uh, we work with a lot of nonprofit uh, veterans groups. We do uh, T-shirt fundraisers. Uh, we sponsor hunts. Uh, you know, we do a lot of things to give back to our military and our first responders um, and what they do day to day, putting their their life on the line for you know their their state, their town, their country. But the the program as a whole is uh, a, a basic discount program, and then you know, like I said, we we run different specials and and uh, programs throughout the year for them. Yeah, that's kind of like a shirt, shirt like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've had this one. For yeah, a just a, a small token of appreciation to give back to that community is is basically what the military and first responders program okay. is, is all about. That's awesome. Yeah, that's weird. that's the one thing like with Kuyu when it first came out. Like Johnny obviously introduced it to me, and the first time I was going sheep hunting, and he's like, "Oh man, you got to get this Kuyu gear," and I'm like. I've never heard of it in my life, right? And he's like, no, he's like, don't get Sitka. Just trust me, get this Kuyu stuff. So, like, I remember going to the stores and talking to, like, guys from one of the outfitting places here. He's like, what's Kuyu? No idea. I'm like, oh, it's supposed to be the next big thing. And I should have bought stocks in it back then if they were available because, fuck, did it explode. Yeah. Like, it, it went yeah. from no one knowing to absolutely everyone having it. Like, and yeah, even I on. pronounce it. Yeah, oh, people still can't pronounce it. Kui, Kuyu, yep. like I just laugh, but yep. I mean, I probably pronounce lots of shit wrong too. But most shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, we've we've had a an amazing growth curve. We just celebrated our our ten year anniversary back in April, so it's amazing, uh, you know, to be a customer uh, from the very first year when they came out, you know, to now working for the company ten years later. It, it's pretty cool, uh, full circle. No doubt. Um, well, you kind of mentioned that the guides and the outfitters get a lot of, not so much say, but maybe input into changes and, and tweaks. And that's kind of what you guys are really looking for. Uh, I know this you're not research and development as much, like you said, but you're involved. Do Does Kuyu, you know, really take certain things and, and change it quick? Or is it is it a quite a long process? Or is there just some things you have to change and some things you just can't change everything? Or how does that kind of work? Yeah, so it's kind of a, a little bit of everything. So if there's, you know, small um, changes that can be done fast, then we try and implement those. But a lot of it is, you know, the the design process, the testing, and then coming to market. It, it's a long process from the time a concept is developed until a skew is built and that product's put out. Uh, you know, and again, a lot of that comes back to the authenticity. We're not going to put something out to market that hasn't been thoroughly uh, abused and, and tested. And that's where we use that guide and outfitter pool. Again, those guys that are in the field that put those uh, pieces through their paces and can give us that real world feedback versus some guy that's in a shop, you know, that, that's just building it on a computer. So yeah. uh, we, we look for, again, for, for that real world authenticity to be able to take that piece and put it in BC, put it in the Yukon, put it in Alaska, Texas, you know, wherever it is that's specific to that piece of gear that we're trying to build and, and we put it in that environment and put it through the paces long before it ever comes to market. And then, you know, sometimes we put stuff out and, and you know, it, it gets tweaks after that. So, like, we just reintroduced our guide glove, you know, which is a longtime staple. But, you know, there's there's different manufacturing processes and different materials. And, you know, like technology, it, it improves quickly. So anytime that we can improve something, we'll, you know, we'll turn right around, make improvements that and then put it back out to the market. Yeah, I I mean some of your guys' prototypes 
have worked their way into my closet over the years. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, it's pretty neat watching the development of like, you know, not everyone gets to see a prototype of something, you know, maybe a, two years in advance before something comes out. But I have the advantage of kind of, you know, knowing a guy and uh, just the, how the hunting gear has evolved, you know, like you said, 10 years ago is when you guys started the industry was quite not dull but it wasn't advancing and then as soon as it seemed like Kuyu hit the market and every year like Devin and I would be talking about it and then Kuyu like I look forward to getting the spring booklet magazines in the mail and then you're like what what do they got that's new like my closet is absolutely full every year my wife hates it because I the only thing I want for my Christmas and birthday is fucking I want Kuyu I want the new stuff right so it's the, I no, like their, yeah, their I, role developing, just how gear has gone. It's exponential what the gear is now compared to 10 years ago. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm a hardcore gear nerd. Like, if it's new, I've got to have it. And that's one of the coolest things about this job uh, within the Dine Outfitter program is me getting all those prototypes, you know, long before it goes to market and getting to test it in the field and then give feedback and then see that again come full circle out into the market. And then with Kuyu, like you said, it was kind of, you know, the flat line with, with what was out there and, you know, what Jason wanted to bring to the industry and shake it up was that technology piece that was missing that you've seen in a lot of the mountaineering companies, you know, that, that were bringing those super technical fabrics. Uh, and so, you know, he wanted to, to put that into the hunting industry, design his own camo patterns that, you know, it was authentic to the brand, recognizable to the brand, the logo, you know, a name that, that nobody could produce or pronounce and, and launch to you, you know, direct to consumer again, you know, shake up the, the retail sales model. And then from there, every year out, it, it's just been all about an improvement. And the, one of the biggest focuses of, of Kuyu is that technology piece and bringing the best fabrics to the market and, and that technology, no matter where it comes from the world, you know, we, we source stuff from New Zealand, from Japan, uh, uh, Poland, you know, all over the world. If they've got the best material and the best manufacturing process, that's what we go after to bring it. Yeah. So I find in the hunting industry, people aren't scared to spend a few extra bucks if they're getting quality. And it's yeah, same- absolutely. And yeah. And, and yeah. especially when you're in those, those mountain conditions, like we are in, in Canada and Alaska and in the West, you know, when you're, you're going to see, the, the weather changes and the temperature changes and, you know, you can go from 60 and sun to a foot of snow to be able to have that gear to transition and, and layer up or layer down without having to leave the mountain. Yeah. And you don't learn that until you get stuck in shitty gear and you get fucking sweaty and you get wet. And I did it in Carhartts and I did it in, I'm sure we all did fucking <laughs> cotton shirts. And, and then I wondered why yeah. I was so miserable on Saturday afternoons when I should be still hunting. And I was like, I'm going fucking home. And that was like conversations I would have with Kurt. Be like, we, I need better gear. You've talked about Kuyu. This was like eight years ago or whatever. And I'm like, okay, like I want to spend some money because I want to stay in the mountains fucking longer. Yeah. Why be miserable? I mean, yeah, it's not cheap by any means. And, you know, a lot of the key to that is buying it piece by piece until you build that kit for you. But, you know, all all the shit talkers and haters, you know, they talk about, you know, my grandpa did it in, in blue jeans. You know, yeah, but was he wet and cold and miserable? Probably. And was he, yeah. you know, why, why, why bring that extra suck on you if you don't have to? If, if you have the, the resources and ability to have the best of the best, why wouldn't you? 
So that, exactly. I had a thought there, like best of the best like that. I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts. Like you came from military, which I assume you probably ran and and handled some durable, tough gear. I don't know, but I just that's just my concept of like, if you build something for the military, it's going to be tough, durable, and can take a beating. When you first came over to Kuyu, uh, what was your initial kind of thought of their gear? Was it tough enough? Did you help with developing tougher techniques, or was it like kind of give us a thought there? No, so I mean, like I said, I, I, I was a Kuyu customer from, from year one. Uh, so I was super familiar with the brand, super familiar with the technology and, and the advancement that, that they were wanting to do. So they've already had those ideas and thoughts in place. Again, you know, we have a lifetime uh, manufacturer's defect warranty on all of our products. So if a seam busts out, if a zipper busts out, uh, you, you send it back and we're going to either fix it or replace it. So there's a lot of thought process that goes into that as far as building um bigger stronger faster lighter gear all right yeah oh, that's good um i think jumping kind of into another topic uh, i mean we're gonna talk about it sometime and i'm sure kuyu and gear is still gonna tie into it but we kind of wanted to pick your brain and your experience on just kind of mountain hunting and pre preparation for mountain hunts and those kind of style and and whatnot so like when i'm assuming the army prepares you a lot more mentally and how to you know handle that enduring times like those mountain hunts and, and the training and everything leads up to it um can you kind of touch on that like did that really help you evolve into a in a serious mountain hunter or was it just always going to be ingrained in you yeah so it's a little bit of both you know growing up in colorado as as uh you know in the west mountain hunting you know that was kind of always in my blood in my dna but absolutely the military as a whole um you know toughens you up trains you you know gives you that mental fortitude and that mindset that, that that there is no quit you know whether it's raining wet snow or cold you've always got that mindset that that you're not going home and, and inside the military it's not like hunting where if you do get wet and cold you get out of your stand or you walk to your truck and you go home you know the, the military you, it, it's it's raining and you're you're still training so absolutely builds a, a tougher mindset and that transitions with skill sets as well you know the fundamentals of shooting uh craftsmanship in the woods just all of that transfers from the military side into the hunting side uh and specifically into the mountain hunting side as well so when you prep for a mountain hunt nowadays do you have little tips and tricks that came from uh heavy style like ruck sessions or things like that do you still use those in your in your mountain prep is that something you could share with us like what's your kind of prep before a big sheep hunter or something like that yeah so as i've gotten older um and more experienced and and gained a lot of knowledge i definitely do things a lot smarter like when i was younger and and in the military it's just go 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 uh no quit it doesn't matter you just got to do it where now uh, you know, things hurt a little bit more, takes a little bit longer to do. So I'm a lot more methodical with my training, a lot more methodical with my diet, a lot more methodical with my prep. You know, I don't, I don't take anything for granted. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very meticulous with, with the gear that I put together and what goes to the field with me, how I pack that gear. Uh, you know, any little advantage I feel like to be lighter, faster, stronger, more efficient, I, I, I put that into my prep whether it's uh, on the physical side with my body or into my gear before I go on a big mountain hunt. Like the days of suffering and, and you know, I try and limit that as much as possible, limit the suck factor as much as you can. 
because you know anytime you go on a mountain hunt it, it doesn't matter you're gonna you're gonna face caloric deficits you're gonna face you know uh, muscle strains and you know you're gonna put your body to the test and anything that I can do to make that easier or, or be more efficient then I'm all about it Nice. When you, when you say you're pretty long-winded answer there with no specifics, but <laughs> well, I'm gonna pull. I'm gonna see if you can pull a specific from you. I heard you say uh, your pack kind of arrangement. So, ha- have you played with over the years of of how you pack it? I know everyone does. We all try. Obviously, heavy gear closer to the back and everything like that. But one thing I'm this would be a question coming from what I plan with is leaving stuff loose or packing stuff tight. And what I mean by that is like the sleeping bags, the tents, the sill tarps. I'm trying to figure out myself what I like more. Is do I like a stuffed down sack that's kind of hard, or do you like it a little more flowy? Like I don't. Is that something that you're playing with there? Yeah, and for me, I've gone through every facet and every fad that there is in mountain hunting, from the ultralight, um, you know, counting every single uh, ounce and and gram, and cutting the end off your toothbrush, and and leaving stuff home, and you know, I, I've gone through all of it uh, with with what goes to the field and what stays. And for me, I'm an organizational nut. So like everything's got its place and everything is secured within the pack inside of its own bag. So like I know where everything is at all times. Everything has a place inside my rock and I know right where to go to, to get that. So I've refined everything over the years and a lot of that's come through experience and most of that has come through sucking in one way or, or another. You know, whether it's, it's caloric deficit with the, the meals or cutting gear weight. Um, I mean, 10 years ago, I, I was young enough and dumb enough that, you know, my buddy Mikey and I, we'd go on a five-day mountain goat hunt. And the only food we took was 10 Snickers bars and a water purifier, you know. And <laughs> 10 years later, you know, I can't do that same thing I did 10 years ago. I've got to have a better diet. You know, I need more fuel for my body you know, to be able to push and to go and, and do what I do. So I've, I've done a lot of refinement over the years. And to me, there's not one mold that fits everybody. Like you've got to put that time in to your gear to find out what works for you. Like right now I'm, I'm 50 days out from the Alaska doll sheep opener. Every morning at 5 a.m. I get up, I throw my pack on and I go walk the neighborhood for an hour. And every day I come home and kind of make refinements and tweaks to that gear. And I don't have just weight inside my pack. Like I have everything that I plan on taking to the field. And this is my time to make sure everything works, everything fits, nothing rattles, everything has its place, you know, and and the fit and function and comfort is all there long before I ever get to opening day and fly into the field where I'm out there for 10 days and, and there is no fine tuning at that point anymore. So it's like I said, it's a very methodical approach. I put a lot of time and effort into it. When most people are still sleeping in that extra hour, I'm up and, and walking through the neighborhood for an hour with my pack on my back. No, that's uh, that's smart. I mean, that's really good. Um, when you're taking, I assume I know the answer, but over the years of your experience, <laughs> had you always proven out a piece of gear in, in your mountain hunt bag or was there times where you just said i needed it i'm just going to try it it's a little bit new but i think it'll be all right or do you always have to prove it out heading into the mountains so now i i try and always prove everything out long before i go where before i i get a new piece of kit and it would go in the pack and and the first time i was out on the mountain is the first time it got used and those days are long gone because i've had so much failure you know and the days of me being tired cold and wet 
you know, of my own doing or over. So I'm, I'm going to put that time and effort into every piece of gear that goes to the field with me. It's going to have a specific function. And if it's got two functions, that's even better. So, you know, anything that I can do. Yeah, I look at it now. If, if instead of those 10 Snickers bars and that one water purifier, uh, and this is where buying and having the best, most technical elite gear on the planet is the more weight I can cut in my pack doesn't necessarily mean less weight that I'm carrying on the mountain. That means it's more food I can carry. It means it's a thicker, nicer, more comfortable sleeping pad. You know, that's kind of my mindset now where I, I, I stay and hover around the same weight going into the field for a seven to 10 day hunt. But now as I refine that gear, I'm able to take better stuff, uh, more food, things that are going to make me comfortable and make me hunt better over the duration of that time frame. How many, when you pack your, your bag, how heavy is it? So depending on the, the length of the hunt and the type of the hunt I'm doing, whether it's archery or a rifle hunt, I'm in between that 45 to 55 pound mark. So and a little bit of that will fluctuate on the number of days, you know, whether it's a seven day hunt or a 10 day hunt, because, you know, I'll, I'll need to increase the amount of food. And then the other side of that is what time of year, you know, whether it's an August sheep hunt, uh, September mountain goat hunt, or, you know, a no, uh, or I'm sorry, an October mountain goat hunt or a November deer hunt, you know, so that'll change the fluctuation in the weight of the pack there. But basically between that 45 to 55 pound mark is where I hover in. So would that nice. be 45 nice. to 55 and then probably not counting water yet and not counting a, a weapon? Nope, that counts everything. That's water, Jeez. that's oh. food, that's my weapon. And, and the water piece plays into it too. Sometimes, you know, if I know where I'm hunting and I know that I have a water source and I don't have to carry water in, like I, I've hunted the same mountain goat uh, mountain for six years. I know where to find water. So that three hour hike up the, the 4,000 foot avalanche chute, I know that I don't need to pack an extra three liters of water, not knowing if I'm going to have a water source on top. So again, a lot of that comes into the prep too of, of, you know, doing your e-scouting before you go in, or if you can fly a drainage, you know, before you go into it, knowing whether or not you need to pack water in there, or if you just got to pack your water purifier. Definitely shaving six pounds off. That's a pretty good for deficit right there. Yeah. Absolutely. That makes a huge difference. And again, like I said, if you can cut six pounds off, um, taking water out, you know, why not carry in two, three, four more pounds of food? Yep. Definitely. Kurt and I have been kind of chatting about this over the last few weeks and, and every year when we talk about our, our backpack weights and hunts and, and we're not, we don't shy away from, we pack in comfort. We're one of those guys, but we're still trying to, get it lighter like we're not going to sit here and say like we're not trying to make the trip suck less as as you would say justin and uh we can't like what would be a good if you have a tip i mean it's obviously buy the best gear you can and, and go from there do you think experience sheds weight or is there like a, a one tip how do you get down because like i don't think man i go in on three day elk hunts over a weekend and have 55 pounds in my bag like fucking 10 oh, days yeah like we i mean <laughs> i'm sure there's shit that, we, i know there's shit we cut out but we had our 72 yeah. bags loaded to the nuts with shit strapped all on the outside like we were like 75 plus a couple times and that's just for yeah. like a weekend elk hunt and, and yeah those are crazy numbers and you know those are the types <laughs> of numbers that i was hunting with 10 years ago and again it, it just comes down to um, I wrote a mountain goat article last year. I talked about weight versus reward. It's like, is that weight that you're carrying enough reward to be able to put out the energy to carry it on the mountain with you? So, you know, is, do you need to pack that extra 
jacket? Do you need to pack that extra, you know, whatever it is. And then anything that you can use that has two functions, you know, obviously then you're cutting out another one worth of weight. And it, it's just a refinement of gear over the years and, and finding what works for you. But it's that weight versus reward. You know, is it worth carrying on the mountain, uh, you know, to, to have that extra hoodie or that extra whatever it is. So like I'm, on my early season hunts, I can tell you right now, like I don't take a soft shell jacket. Um, you know, my August, when I leave here, August uh, 7th to fly into the field for, for my doll sheep hunt, um, I'll, I'll have a rain jacket. I'll have uh, a, a puffy jacket. I'll have a t-shirt. And then I have a, a what we call a Peloton 97, um, which is for its weight, probably the, the warmest thing on the planet. So just mixing those pieces of gear, you know, I, I'm dumping, you know, roughly a pound and a half or two pounds worth of a soft shell jacket out of there because I don't need it. You know, if it gets cold, I'll put the puffy on. If it if it rains or I need to cut the wind, then I'll put the, the rain jacket on. That was our plan last year, cut the soft shells. And uh, we. I thought I did, but apparently I packed it up there because I found it when I was unpacking my fucking bag. Yeah, I, I didn't pack mine oh. last year, uh, like Kurt said, but I, I'm actually, I was thinking about putting it back in because I, I like, I was wearing my guy jacket this spring for uh, bear hunting and i was like oh i love this fucking jacket at camp and because kurt and i slept in the bush the one night we got his ram and the fire burnt a hole in my chugach rain jacket so now i'm like fuck if i would have my guide jacket that wouldn't happen so now it's like <laughs> yeah but now you know i, I still guess we're going earlier so i don't need it like you said is the reward yep. fucking worth it probably not yeah. And then, you know, another uh, thing that I do too on my earlier season hunts, like I, I no longer take a jet boil and fuel canister in, um, all the food I take, uh, doesn't need to be heated up. So, um, I do a lot of the, the breakfast meals where all you got to do is add water. Um, and then I've got my own mix that we call mountain crack and now it's mountain crack 2.0. And it's just a combination <laughs> of, uh, granola, uh, chocolate covered almonds, peanut butter, M&Ms and, uh, a sandwich baggy size of that uh, pr produces over a thousand calories. So, you know, just refining again, what, what you want to take out there. So, you know, I, I, right there, I cut out the weight of a stove. I cut out the weight of a, of um, fuel. So you know, that's two more things on those, those earlier season hunts mm -hmm. where if I move into the later season hunts, I want to have that stove with me in case I, I hit inclement weather and I need to dry something out or I, I need it for emergency purposes. But just just those little tips and techniques that you pick up along the way is where you you're able to shed that weight. Yeah. No. I mean, and so are you carrying a spotter in this inclusion spotter tripod? Is that in this weight? Yep. And yep, it sure is. And, and again, I've got you know the the ultra light end of it. And if you're buddy hunting, you know it's so easy to cut weight if you're buddy hunting. Like if there's two guys going like on my dull sheep hunt, um, my best friend uh, from Ranger Regiment is flying up. He's he's going to be fifty. And this was his dream hunt. And so we're going doll sheep hunting. We're taking one rifle, you know, and obviously we both don't need a spotting scope. We both don't need a tripod, you know, and between the two of us being super deer nerds and having all that time in the field and all that time in the military, we're able to, to cut all that stuff down to where we're, we're, we're not taking two of anything. So everything, you know, has its place and there's no overlapping, no extra weight. So we can hunt lighter and, and, and hunt harder, therefore. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I mean, we've asked uh, a few other guests this question. I kind of want to modify it for Justin a little bit. Uh, Kurt, you can change it after too. But we've kind of asked guys in the past, like, you know, name three pieces of gear that are the most important. 
I kind of want to ask you uh, a bit of different style of that question and kind of like weight excluded. Like, don't worry about it. <clears throat> what three pieces of gear or just any pieces of gear when it comes to, I don't know, being successful as a hunter, not so much being comfortable as a mountain hunter, but success. Like what stuff do you bring that you have to have? And I ain't cutting out and I'm not doubling up because you're, you're worried about the success of that hunt. Yeah. Number one that I didn't think of right off the top of my head is optics. And with optics, you get what you pay for. And that old saying of buy once, cry once really applies to that. Like all of my optics that I run are all Swarovski. Like you, you compare them hands down side by side with any other brand and there is nothing that is, you know, better than a Swarovski vinyl or a Swarovski spotting scope. And time behind that glass is going to pay dividends in the long run. So for me, number one, hands down, is buy the best optics on the planet. And for me, the best optics are Swarovski. So what are your next two items that you're taking with you? So must have for me being on a mountain hunt is trekking poles and you got to have two. So again, they pay dividends, whether you're going in or coming out. Um, I mean, they're just an absolute lifesaver. And again, with trekking poles, they're multifaceted, you know, um, there's setups now where you can use your trekking poles. You don't need a bipod on your rifle now because you can use your trekking poles as your shooting sticks. Um, you can use your trekking poles as your tent poles with, um, a lot of the, the setups that are out there now with these shelters. Um, so again, having that extra toolkit that, that is multifaceted cuts weight in other areas. And then number three, um, I would probably say good, well-broken, well-used boots. So I don't think enough people put enough thought into their boots. Um, you know, your feet are, you know, the, the lifeblood for the rest of your body. If your feet are done, then you're done. You know, so being able to, to have good, well-made, comfortable, well-fitted, well-broken boots. The, those boots? would be the three things off the top of my head. What kind of boots do you run? Yeah, so I use Lathrop & Sons boots. Um, I, I've been with them for probably 12, 13 years now. And so I run, I've got a, I don't run, I've, I've got a 6E wide foot. So my foot is almost wow. as wide as it is long. So I'm not fitting in a lot of those those European boots, those Italian-made boots, um, like the Starpas that we, we sell at Kuyu. Phenomenal boots, but there's no way I'm squeezing my shoebox feet into those <laughs> things. So um, I flew down to Lathrop & Sons probably eight, nine, ten years ago. They, they molded my feet. Um, they've got my profile on hand, and they custom mold my boots to my feet. Uh, and I buy a new pair every year. So, and, and I get those, and as soon as I get them, I put them on my feet, and I try and wear them every single day, getting them broken, getting them fitted, working through all those spots. So, and, and going back to feet, a uh, uh, tip that I, I tell everybody all the time, if you haven't heard of it yet, is Luco P tape. Um, I tell people all the time, and, and you put it on before you get to the field. Pre-tape your feet. That, that stuff is magic. You, you put that on, it'll last 10 days, and you can be in the wettest, nastiest, harshest country, and zero blisters yeah i was actually luco p tape is a must-have that's interesting you brought that up i was gonna ask you right as soon as we started talking about boots i think i've heard you talk about it before or mentioned it somewhere and do you not just it's because i've heard guys take duct tape but duct tape doesn't breathe and it comes off and wet and it gets sweaty so do you just don't take duct tape don't take that kind of tape and just switch it right out for luco tape yeah so and like i said once i get to the field before we we go in 
um, you know, whether you call it from base camp or from your truck or whatever, um, before I'm going in on any type of long hike, I've already pre-taped my feet, the back to my heels, um, those spots on my toes that I know that sometimes rub when I'm, I'm on nasty slopes and I pre-taped those. And since I started pre-taping my feet probably six, seven, eight years ago, I've never had a blister and I've been in the nastiest, wettest conditions that you can think of. And, and to me, it's a lifesaver. Again, if you're not thinking about your feet, you're hunting harder. Yep. I've read something nice. with that, uh, Luco tape that you can, there's like a, it's like benzo, there's some kind of chemical thing that you can wipe on first and keep it stick even better. Is that even worth it? Or is it just the tape? I, honestly, I've never had an issue with the tape. I always double it and then I always wrap it back on itself. So it always sticks back onto itself. So it doesn't have an open-ended seam just on skin. So, you know, if you're going to wrap it around a toe or even if you're going to wrap it around your heel, then I wrap it all the way back around my ankle. So then it's always contact. And like I said, I've, I've gone 10 days and not have to, to replace the, the Luco tape on my feet. Yeah, I think I'll be I'll be throwing that in, in the bag for our hunt, Kurt. I was looking it up Definitely. already. So, and, and then, um, you know, the, the great thing about Luco tape, too, is if you've got some with you. So I wrap my, my trekking poles and, and I take three types of tape to the field with me and I, I wrap it on both trekking poles and I, I wrap Luco tape, electrical tape and then duct tape. Because, um, you know, it, it's not practical to carry a roll of tape with you, but a few ounces, I mean, I don't even know if it's a few ounces between all three tapes on both trekking poles. It's invaluable the amount of times that you'll need uh, tape in the field and be able to have it right there on your trekking pole. It's not adding weight to your back. And when you're walking with your trekking poles and your pre-hunt uh, training, you know, you don't even think about that. It, it's there, There's no added weight there. So that, that's a huge tip that I've used over and over again over the years is is wrapping up those three three types of tape and you know it, it works great for cuts it works great for repairing holes in your pants you know doing whatever you need tape for it, you've got it right there at your fingertips yeah no, that's a great tip um i gotta ask because you're an ex-sniper and now you're now you've told us you've also trained people in shooting so i have to assume you're very versed in shooting and you're very good at it and you can say you're not and when it comes to military level because you're it sounds like you're not very uh i don't know what the word is but you seem like you're very uh very humble humble that's what it is so it's like i'm yeah. sure you're an excellent shooter when it comes to plugs like us in the hunting industry can, can you give us a little uh sniper advice on practice for just shooting in general but mainly you know rifle long range how you get better what's the what's your as you know military trained <clears throat> advice yeah, again, so uh, number one, it comes back down to equipment. Buy and have the absolute best equipment that you have. Um, put that that money into upgrades. You know, I know that not everybody can afford a custom rifle right out the door, but, you know, you buy that rifle one year and then you put away 50 bucks a month for the next two years and you upgrade, you know. So start out with the best system that you can because, you know, that system's going to cut a lot of gaps out in your shooting ability. You know, if the gun does what it's supposed to do right off the bat, and you don't have to fight it. That's going to help a bunch. So, and then after that, it's, you know, those fundamentals of marksmanship, you've got to do the same thing every time. You've got to put that time into the fundamentals with your trigger squeeze, with your, your breathing, your proper sight picture. And if you do the same thing over and over again, and you keep good track of that, when something messes up, you're able to identify it. You know, you're not trying to figure out, you know, is it the gun, is it me? So if you're doing that same thing every time, you know when you pull that shot, or you know if there's something wrong with your gun and you, you need to adjust it. And then it's just time behind the gun, whether you're shooting or a gun or a bow, 
Um, it's just putting in that time on the range so that you're building that muscle memory so that when the shot comes, you're not thinking about the process, you're just doing the process. So, and again, with me hiking every day, another thing that I do, so I'm a big time bow hunter, love to bow hunt. And no matter what day of the year it is or what the weather conditions is, I shoot my bow, whether it's at seven yards in my garage that are targeted against the wall, or I drive onto base to shoot the hundred yard range, I shoot my bow every single day. And I think that that's what's helped me be a successful bow hunter over the years is that I don't think about the shot process that I've just built that muscle memory and, and it just comes natural. You know, you, you go through, you, you lay the target, you draw back, you let everything or you line everything up and then you, you let it fly. And it's no different with a rifle. The more time you can spend behind the trigger, the, the better you're going to become. You're going to build that muscle memory and you're going to get inevitably you're going to get better at it. With uh, talking about guns and whatnot, I mean, obviously, we all have a collection of guns at home. I imagine you have quite the collection. What's uh, your favorite hunting caliber? And Actually, I don't, and a lot of people assume that. I've only got just a handful of rifles here. Like I said, I'm a big-time bow hunter. I probably bow hunt 75 or 80% of the time. <clears throat> but I've got a, custom, a couple of custom-built rifles from GA Precision, a uh, buddy of mine, George Gardner, he was my one of my very first sponsors 25 years ago when I was shooting competitively, uh, shooting sniper competitions, and and I've stuck with George because George stuck with me. But I've, I've got a custom built uh, 6.5 Creedmoor, and um, a lot you know a lot of people either love or hate the Creedmoor. And the re reason I run a Creedmoor is I'm only running a 16-inch barrel, and I run a folding stock. So between the folding stock and a 16-inch barrel, I'm able to pack that rifle. One, it cuts weight, and then two, I'm able to pack that rifle on the side of my pack, and it doesn't stick above my head, so I'm not beating it through brush. I'm not fighting brush. I'm not fighting alders, devil's club. So I, I run one rifle for 99% of the hunts that I do, and it, it's a custom-built GA Precision 6.5 Creedmoor. Nice. It's got a Manners folding stock on it, 16-inch proof barrel, um, I, I run a can on it. It's, it's got a seven inch suppressor. And then on it, I, I run Leopold VX6 HDs. Uh, to me, they're, they're the best hunting scope for the money with uh, their, their locking turret system and the features that they put into that scope. Um, for, for me, it, it's hands down the best money for a hunting scope. Nice. That's good, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's the one rifle that I run on everything. Um, I've got a huge hunt coming up in October for uh, heading to Kyrgyzstan to hunt Marco Polo and Ibex, and that's the rifle that I'm taking with me. And I've caught a lot of flack from people, again, you know, only being a 6.5 Creedmoor, but I, I know what that rifle can do. I know what my capabilities yeah, are. Yeah, well, that's, um, I think that's the big and, one, is you're going to put that bullet where you want it, like. It, exactly. So when, when you've got the right equipment, you've got the right training, all it comes down to is making that wind call. So I, I know under the conditions that, if I'm given the opportunity that I'm going to be able to make that shot count. So, but again, it, it comes back into good equipment and then I'm putting in the range time. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing, there's no replacement for time. They always say that it's like everything we talk about, I think with hunting gear, everything, it's like time in the field. So you're talking your, your rifles, your bows, Kurt said it before on the podcast. What's the best way to scout your boots. You get out in the field, yep. you're in there. When have we learned the most about the areas we've hunted? When we've failed in the areas we've hunted, not from the internet. Yes, we use the internet a lot for scouting, just like everyone, because you have to use it as a tool, but I think it goes the same way. Um, I was really curious, and I, I, I'm assuming it's a Kuyu, but what uh, Kuyu bag are you running 
for a seven to 10 day hunt? Like what's your backpack setup? Yeah, so I love, um, so obviously we, we run the Pro Series and the Pro 6000 is my go-to bag. Um, but anytime I'm doing super ultra light, long-term uh, backpack hunts, I'm doing the 7000 LT. So, uh, you know, it, it's roughly, I think it's a pound and 10 ounces lighter than the 6000. Uh, you know, it doesn't have all the full features with the, you know, the horseshoe zipper and all the pockets, but because of the way I organize all my gear anyways into its own bags, I don't need that separation. So those are kind of my two go-to long range uh, or long-term hunt bags is the, the 6000 Pro and the 7000 LT. Nice. nice. Yeah, I just saw a guy, a buddy of ours, he picked up a, the 7000 LT. It's I haven't actually looked at it, but he's really happy with the lightness of it and all that. So it's it's good. Yeah, no, this will be the, so I, I got to test the, the prototype. Uh, we went through eight or nine, maybe even 10 iterations of that bag. Um, and it, it's a huge upgrade over our old ultralight system. Um, just the quality of material, the features. And um, I, I love that bag. I go to it more and more um, over the 6,000. But if I had to pick one between the two, the, the 6,000 Pro is my go-to bag. Nice, nice. Um, you kind of touched on your outfitting and whatnot earlier in the show. You, you were kind of saying you're you're getting out of it. Is that true? You're you're not outfitting as much, or what's what's going on with that? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of it, it just comes down to time. Um, working full time for Kuyu, I didn't have time to to guide an outfit. And right now, the only thing that my partner Lee and I, who who works with me at Kuyu, um, is co-owner of our guide business. We run two grizzly bear hunts in the spring each year. And again, it just comes down to time. That's all we've got time for uh, working as full-time employees for Kuyu. It, it basically supplements our hunting fund. <laughs> so the money that we make out of the, those two grizzly bear hunts that we run each year goes into the hunting fund. Nice. Nice. It's nice that you guys got the grizzly hunt up there. Like I know, yeah, uh, no, for sure. It's how uh, in the backcountry, obviously, you know, Alaska, Yukon, Northwest Territories, kind of that same area there's there's abundance of grizzly bears up there how are they out in the mountains are they scared of humans or are they pretty brave yeah so it honestly depends on the region of where you're at as you guys know alaska is huge and with it you have you know all different types of bears um some regions you know that that get a lot more pressure and see a lot more humans those bears are absolutely scared um and some of the more remote areas where those those bears don't see humans you know, they think they're at the top of the food chain and yeah. they tend to be more aggressive. Um, and, you know, especially I've seen a lot of that on the north slope of the Brooks Range with those Arctic Grizz. Uh, they seem to be a lot more temperamental than than you see a lot of the other bears. Uh, you know, so a lot of it comes down to, to region and where they're at. Yeah, that's like, obviously, you know, BC, they shut it down a few years ago. That's a touchy yep. subject with a lot of guys. For sure. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. Devin and I seem to always land on that topic because it just, it drives me crazy that the government did something like that. You know, we're getting grizzly bears. We've talked about it with a couple other guests. So you're getting grizzly bears in residential areas where there's never, ever been, and they're just roaming around. They're not scared of anything. And it's because they are the top of the food chain now because there's no predators to them, right? Yep. Yeah, you see that same thing in, in the lower 48 in the West, in Montana, Wyoming, uh, Idaho. You know, you, you see more grizzly attacks there than you do in Alaska, and that's because we get to hunt the bears here. You know, they, yeah. they develop that fear of man where down in the lower 48 they don't. Yeah. 
Well, he'd probably be easier to get off a murder charge than shooting a grizzly bear in BC. Like you would get raked against the coals if that ever was to happen, right? Yep, for sure. And just an absolute waste of a resource. You know, it's a renewable resource and and it's just a waste. But as we talked about before, we could all go on over and over and over again about (laughs) wildlife management and and some of the dumb shit you see out there. Yeah, we've just been going through, I don't know how much you see it uh, in your neck of the woods, but we've been just going through a bit of a, a wildlife management you know, situation in BC where we're trying to get together and, and get our government to, you know, stand behind us hunters and, and conservationists. So looks like we're making some movement and headway there. So hopefully that continues and uh, we see some success from that kind of shit. So. Yeah, that's good news. With you guys up in Alaska, especially with the outfitting, did COVID affect you guys at all? It did, yeah. So last year, um, all of the spring bear season was shut down for non-residents. The two clients that we took this year were uh, pushed over from last year's clients. So all of spring bear was shut down. Um, after that, it, it opened up a little bit, but COVID absolutely had an impact on the state um, on the hunting side. Yeah, it ravished like BC, Yukon, like it's... Yeah, and still is. I mean, heart breaks and, and goes out to all those outfitters and guides in, in across Canada, not being able to, to outfit all of last year and the potential for this year to still be closed. I mean, it's it's rough and and you know working with those guys all the time you know i've developed a lot of close relationships and you know people just think of it as hunting and guiding and and outfitting but it's not it's their livelihoods you know and and these are generational families you know and and the potential for more and more of them to go out of business this year is huge and you know it's it's just a bummer yeah it's it's sad for sure um when you well, I, mean, I kind of just want to ask you because it sounds like you've hunted all over the place, but let's let's stay in North America. If you had one hunt that you, you know, love to do every year, is there one that sticks out in your mind that that you get after all the time, or that you'd always want to do? Yeah, hands down, doll sheep. So there's there's not even a close second. I I love hunting bears, grizzly bears specifically. I love mountain goats, but for me, that one day of the year that I look forward to more than any other that is always on the calendar. That's, you know, my Christmas, birthday, New Year's wrapped into one is August 10th, and that's the Alaska doll sheep opener. So no matter what I have going on, that one is always penciled in, number one on the calendar, and always gets priority. Yeah, that's sweet. I mean, I kind of figured it was going to be a – it had to be a mountain hunt. Well, you could have said Colorado mule deer or Colorado elk. I mean, you're a Colorado boy, so you could have surprised us with that, but I had a feeling it was going to be one of the mountain animals for sure. Yeah, and, and for sure, and that's one of those things that, you know, I've been here since 2002 and I never take for granted is the ability to hunt doll sheep and mountain goats and, and grizzly bears and moose and things like that over the counter every single year. You know, growing up in the West with that draw system and the points, you know, I put in for six or seven different states, you know, and I'm lucky to draw a tag once every three to five years out of them at best, uh, you know, to be able to, to be in my own home state and and know that I can hunt doll sheep and mountain goats and grizzly bears every year is just, you know, it, it it's the best. Yeah, that's wicked. Nice. No shortage opportunities here. <laughs> just time and money is the is the hard part. <laughs> only so much time and only so much money to be able to to pick the ones that are you know have priority. Totally. Yeah, we we understand that for sure. I mean, Kurt and I are we're gonna hit the sheep mountains again this. Uh, this summer too, where ours, ours opens August 1st. I'm sure, I'm sure you know that, but uh, we're excited to get, yep. get back out there again. Now, <clears throat> one thing with the podcast, we, uh, 
we obviously love talking gear and and picking expertise and and all that but one thing kurt and i uh we always like to i don't know take pride in or we just this is why we like to talk to other hunters with experiences kind of some hunting stories and uh if we were hoping you had maybe one hunting story in mind that uh, you could share with us or something memorable or funny or just a situation or if that was something that you could uh fill us in on yeah for sure and it's funny because i was just talking to somebody about this the other day um and the one that sticks out in my mind the most that kind of had the most ups and downs and, and a little bit of a funny twist was uh a must ox hunt that i did in nome alaska with one of my best friends mike probably 12 or 13 years ago <clears throat> and uh we 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 went on this hunt and back then young and dumb and just ready to go and you know didn't do a ton of research you know we we had the skill set to survive we we knew what we were doing but you know just again not totally refined and and not having a, a weather forecast before we went into this hunt so anyways we go into the field day one the day before the opener set up our tent camp out on a set of mustocks that we had scouted and it's zero degrees and no wind it, it's absolutely perfect it's february uh, in Alaska and you know we just got the perfect weather and we wake up about four hours later in this nasty windstorm blizzard blows the zipper open on our tent wake up we've got a foot of snow drift inside the tent uh, we, we ride it out through the night and we get up and snow machines won't start so we've got to walk to where the mustocks are um, we, we get onto the mustocks and the wind is blowing so hard. So we woke up, it went from zero degrees Fahrenheit to minus 28 Fahrenheit. And then we had 45 mile an hour winds. So if you combine all that, it's a, it's a negative 66 degree wind chill. So yeah. just brutally cold. So, you know, we've got everything on that we own. We're both bow hunting and we get there and, you know, we get snuck up on the, these four uh, bull mustocks that are bedded, and thank God they were bedded and, and snow drifted over their heads because, you know, we look like a couple of monkeys, you know, out there trying to get it done. You know, you draw back and the wind would blow the arrow off the rest, so one guy would have to stand there and block the wind. So somehow we, we magically get two mustocks killed, and we get them loaded up on the sleds. Uh, Mike, being the wizard that he is, the, the mechanic that can fix anything, gets both of our snow machines started. It's about a 35 mile trek back to town, you know, and we're high five and we're happy. And, you know, we killed our musk ox and, and we're going to make it out alive. And we go a short distance and we run into this guy and uh, it's another musk ox hunter. And he starts asking us if we've seen his buddies. And, we're, you know, we're kind of confused and we're like, no, he's like, yeah, my snow machine got stuck and uh, got off, got it unstuck. And, and when I, I got back on my snow machine, all my buddies were gone. You know, and it, it's kind of white out conditions with all the snow drifts and everything going on. And we're like, okay, well, we're heading back to town. You know, you should probably. And so he ended up being a, a doctor from town and it was his first time out there. He'd only been in Nome a few months, didn't know anything. He had no survival gear, nothing. So, I mean, basically if this guy didn't find us, he might've died, you know, or if we'd have left it behind. So anyways, he, we're like, follow us. We get him in trail and we're hauling balls to the wall to get back to town and the visor on my helmet is all fogged over and frozen. So I've got it run up, you know, so I can see out of it. So I'm getting blasted in the face. And we go to cross this river and it was snow drifted over super bad. And so I know that I've got to gun it. I've got a muskox on a trailer behind me, so, you know, super weighted down. I don't have a lot of uh, experience with snow machines to begin with, kind of rookie there. So I just gun it, hoping to make it through this river crossing 
and I just hit this wall of snow and just come to a dead complete stop and my face plants into the windshield of the snow machine and I break my nose and the blood comes pouring out and when it hits the tip of my nose, it freezes solid. So that, that gives you an idea of how cold it is at minus 66 Fahrenheit, you know, that when blood hits the surface, it freezes instantly. So anyways, we spent the next couple hours digging out the snow machine, got loose, made it back to town, and we all lived. But that's the one story when anybody asks me, you know, the hardest hunt, the funniest hunt, the most difficult. That's one that I always go back to is a snow machine must hunt in, in Nome, Alaska. That's fucking but, crazy, man. Yeah, that, that. yeah. So, yeah, a couple of, like, the, the rangefinder froze. We took a camera. The camera froze. We had a twenty two rifle for uh, um, shooting Arctic Fox with. And uh, we went to pull it out of the, the scabbard and the plastic stock broke in half. I mean, anything that could go wrong went wrong and we still lived. And oh. my buddy Mike, my buddy Mike swore off. He's like, I will never, ever go muskox hunting with you again. And, you know, it was like a lot of the mountain trips where when you get off the mountain, you're like, that's the last time I'm doing that. And 364 days is a long time to forget something. <laughs> you know, so both of us swore off muskox hunting. And, and since then, I've been on three more muskox hunts. <laughs> And Mike is, is sworn true that he, he was never going on a muskox hunt again. So when you do a hunt like that, like you guys are obviously in your tent, like you probably, you can't have any heat source in there because you build condensation, right? Or... Yeah, so we, we did have a buddy heater that we had taken with us. Um, but again, it was one more, one more thing that didn't work. Yeah. You know? Fuck, that would be cold. Yeah, that's wild. It, it was brutal. It was brutal. That's by far the worst weather conditions I've ever been in. Yeah, it's just funny how you can go through these situations as hunters. We we were talking about this last weekend, buddy of mine. We we were just cutting trail, cutting some game cams in, and you know, but putting in a lot of effort in the hot sun in, in June when most people are going to the lake or the beach, and we're in, you know, our hunting clothes and gear and cutting and. And you wonder why you do it sometimes, and it just draws you back, though. Every Like you said, 364 days. Fuck, I had a, we, we put in a shift. Like, we put in a shift of trail cutting and sweating and cussing and getting saws stuck in the backcountry and in logs and all this shit. And then when I got home, I was like, oh, I can't wait to go elk hunting. Like, I was just like, I, I yeah. want to get out there. Like, that was, it's just something in your blood that you just, certain people have it, and I guess certain people don't. Yep. That's mountain goats for me. Like mountain goats live in the nastiest, most brutal country. And every year when I get done with mountain goat hunting and I've killed a pile of goats and I love to go goat hunting. But at the end of the hunt, when you get off the mountain and you've got that goat on your back and you make it back, I'm like, man, that is the last time I am doing that. I was like, that just, why do I do that? You know, that sucks. And then there I am 365 days later, opening day of mountain goat season. I'm on the mountain getting my ass kicked. Yeah. Well, I think mountain goats and sheep and haven't missed a season yeah. yet. So <laughs> I always think mountain goat and sheep have that like, I don't know, they're magical. You see them because you get to see them and you get to watch them. And I think that's the biggest thing for me. Like we, we elk hunt really hard, but like most people know when you hunt elk, you might see them for in the country we hunt, you might see them for 15 seconds and that's all you get. But with the goats and the sheep, you build this like visual relationship with them. So you're just like, I don't know, watching them jump around the cliffs and and cruise in sheep country that was fun like when kurt and i went sheep hunting this last year we watched those rams for four hours before we were able to put you know get into place and make a a legal judge and and a shot and then same with goat shit we've watched the same goats because down where i live we get the opportunity with limited entry hunts to, to you know to 
go out on weekends and hunt mountain goat you know not even backpack trips we just get a chance to you know get close to them from logging roads even here in, in bc and i don't know we put that relationship together i've turned a, a hunting buddy of mine into a mountain goat hunter from not even wanting to go mountain goat hunting the year he pulled his draw to wanting to go this year before i even said anything it's just yeah yeah, totally. No, I agree with you that that visual acuity uh, or, or visual aspect of hunting goats and sheep, uh, you know, is a huge draw to it. Like I, I tell people growing up in the West, uh, my favorite thing to hunt was antelope. And again, it's because, you know, th th they're not hard to find. You know, you've got them out there in the open plains. You can see them. You're interacting with them. You're watching them. And absolutely mountain goat and doll sheep hunting is, is the same way. Seeing those those white bodied animals in the, in the black rocks, you know, it's just something super cool about that definitely sweet well uh kurt i don't have any anything else to add here uh you got any other topics you want to touch on with justin we still have them no that was that was good we, we kind of had a little game plan here and i think we hit them all so thanks for spending an hour with us we really appreciate it no absolutely glad to be here guys like again you know sorry it took a couple weeks to get it all put together but yeah super stoked to, to hang out and talk to you guys for a little bit oh this is oh, sweet no worries man hunting season what can you do right yeah. exactly yeah spring bears i only got a week left so hopefully uh be out there this weekend and uh uh chasing grizzlies and black bears again yeah well nice, maybe man. well good luck maybe one time we can meet face to face with johnny and put a few back and tell some real bullshit and stories too yeah absolutely no i think we'd have a blast the four of us together so yeah. definitely be good. trouble yeah fuck it right <laughs> <laughs> on all right thanks a lot justin yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Appreciate you having me on. So we'll talk, Good. talk to you guys later. Thanks, Good bro. luck with the rest of your hunting season, too. Thanks, buddy. You guys, too. Good luck this fall. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. All Take right, we'll keep in touch. See you guys. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the law. Catch me howling at the moon